Good morning, Desert Hills family. Welcome to our 845 service. I'm excited about all that the Lord is doing here at Desert Hills, and I'm excited about the upcoming days. Open House Sunday is going to be one of the greatest days in the history of our church. We are planning on saturating our area with invitations and with the gospel, and uh, I understand it takes an effort, it takes a team, it takes a family, it takes a church banding together, everybody doing their part, giving at least an hour to serve, uh, to pass out flyers, uh, to invite friends, to, to help around the building, to prepare it, or to make it get back to what it was after the day, and then everybody participating in giving. And I believe we're going to see some wonderful results that will affect uh, uh, not only our, our time right now as a church, but into the, the days and years ahead. So I want to encourage you to all get involved, to turn in a card. If you have any questions, Pastor Dominic will be happy to answer those questions. And I'm excited. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about closing out our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin reading at verse 10. We've been in this series about the transformational church, a church that God used to start there at a place called Ephesus in Asia Minor. And from that church was started, most people believe, the church at uh, Colossae, the church at Thyatira, uh, the church at Pergamos, all these other surrounding Asiatic cities, were, these churches were started as a result of this one ministry. And literally, this church was used uh, to change that area of the world. And we want to be used to change our world as well, and it starts one person at a time. But we're going to find ourselves here in Ephesians chapter 6, and the title of the message today is Every Believer's Battle. Every Believer's Battle. Now, Joshua Chamberlain was a student of theology and a professor of rhetoric, not a soldier. But when duty called, Chamberlain answered. He climbed the ranks to become colonel of the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry Regiment in the Union Army. And on July the 2nd, 1863, Chamberlain and his 300 soldier regiment, regiment were all that stood between the Confederates and certain defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg. In fact, if you ever studied history and if you've ever been to Gettysburg, it was just this monumental battle that changed the tide of the war. My family and I visited there several years ago and standing where uh, everything went down at Little Rowden Top was very sobering for us. Now at 2.30 p.m., the 15th and the 47th Alabama Infantry Regiments of the Confederate Army charged, but Chamberlain and his men held their ground. Then the 2nd and 3rd and 4th and 5th charge. Now by the last charge, only 80 Blues stood standing. Chamberlain himself was knocked down by a bullet that hit his belt buckle, but the 34-year-old schoolteacher got back up. It was his date with destiny. When Sergeant Tozier informed Chamberlain that no reinforcements were coming and that his men were down to one round of ammunition per soldier, Chamberlain knew he had to act decisively. Their lookout, a little uh, guy uh, perched high in a tree on a little round top, informed Chamberlain that the Confederates were forming rank. Now, the rational thing to do at this point, with no ammunition and no reinforcements, would have been to surrender. But Chamberlain wasn't wired that way. 
He made a defining decision that turned the tide of the war and single-handedly saved the Union. Now, in full view of the enemy, he uh, pulled his sword out and climbed on top of the barricade of stones, and he gave the command, charge, in full view of the enemy. His, his men fixed bayonets and started running at the Confederate army down the hill, which vastly outnumbered them. They caught the Confederates off guard by executing a great right wheel and in which uh, one of the battles that ranks as, as one of the most improbable victories in military history, 80 Union soldiers captured 4,000 Confederates in five minutes flat. What seemed like a suicide mission saved the Union. Historians believe that if Chamberlain had not charged, the rebels would have gained the high ground. If the rebels had gained the high ground, there's a good chance they would have won the Battle of Gettysburg. And if the rebels had won that battle, the historical consensus is that the Confederates would have won the war. One man's courage saved the day, saved the battle, saved the war, and saved the Union. Years later, Chamberlain would reflect back on the war with these words, I had deep within me the inability to do nothing. He said, I knew I may die, but I also knew that I would not die with a bullet in my back. Now, Chamberlain was a warrior. And this warrior knew that in his battle, he could not cut and run. He was wired to fight. Now, Paul, in our text, was telling the Ephesians they needed to remember that they were in a battle and that they could not cut and run and that there was a battle for them to fight. Now, he began by giving his last words here in the book of Ephesians by telling them, as one person said, and, and enfolding to them God's purpose, conceived in eternity past before the foundation of the world to create a single new human race through the death and the resurrection of Christ and to ultimately unite the whole church and the whole creation under the headship of Jesus. God uses Paul to emphasize this distinctive organization has been given this divine plan by the inclusion in God's new society on an entirely equal footing of Jews and Gentiles. The old days of division and discrimination were gone. A brand new oneness has emerged in which through the union with Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are equal members of the same body and equal sharers in the same promise. So now the one father has one family. The one Messiah has one people. And the one spirit has one body. And the Ephesians must live a life that is worthy of their calling, fitting to their status as God's new reconciled society. And Paul in the text reminds us of the opposition that every one of us as believers will face. Beneath the surface appearances of our world is an unseen spiritual battle raging and we need to fully understand it. In fact, Ephesus was front and center in the battle. Satan had a stronghold there. The temple of Artemis was a place where darkness was perpetuated. Pagan sacrifices of sex and ritual prostitution, unholy dogma, and behavior that was utterly shameful were taking place all the time in Ephesus. 
Not only uh, was every form of sexual deviance promoted, but the dark philosophy of the Greco-Roman world, which elevated man to the place of God, was being sounded out there. Demonic forces were at work. There was so much demonic activity that the book of Acts records a group of uh, uh, Jewish proselytes that were, were, were wandering around Ephesus because they heard that uh, they could make some money by performing exorcisms. In fact, the book of Acts gives this account in verse 13 of chapter 19. There were certain vagabond Jews, exorcists, and they took upon them to call over those which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, we adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Now, they weren't preaching Jesus, but they were using the name of Jesus, or at least trying to. And the Bible goes on to say this, and there were seven sons of one Sceva, a, a Jew, chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, imagine this, you're doing things in the name of Jesus, and you're trying to exorcise some demons from somebody that has a demonic possession, and you stand up and say, in the name of Jesus, I adjure thee, come out. And then the demon replies, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? And not only that, and the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They got their behinds beat and they got their clothes lost. And all this was known to the Jews and Greeks that dwelled at Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now Satan and his demons were trying to get a stranglehold on this community. They were trying to diminish new believers. They were trying to diminish this new church. And they were trying to destroy every person they could. Now, we are all in a battle. But the question that is often asked is how can we win or prevail in the battle? The Bible tells us in verse 10, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and in the power of his might. Now, the battle we face is not a battle we can win with our Bible knowledge or our theological degrees. Uh, we have people here that come to Desert Hills and they have doctorates in theology. We have at least two of them, maybe three. We have several that have masters in theology, but you know what? I, I have uh, uh, lots of understanding, lots of education of theology, but that battle that I'm facing against the devil and his minions cannot be won by my theological knowledge. The battle we face is not a battle we can, we can face by saying, okay, I've been a Christian for a long time. The battle that we face cannot be won by our fortitude and self-discipline. The Bible tells us that we need to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, literally the power that overcomes any resistance. Now, we cannot win this battle apart from the Lord and his might. And then the Bible tells us that we need to put on the whole armor of God, that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, the duty of every Christian is to put on what God has already provided, his armor, so that we can stand against the trickery and the wiles of the devil. Now, we will not and cannot win this battle by a fleshly means. 
In fact, Paul reminds the Corinthians of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, the way to victory is humbling ourselves and recognizing we do not have what it takes to win spiritual battles on our own. We need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then we see this morning the enemies that we face. We all have common enemies as believers. In fact, 1 John chapter 2 says it this way, Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are not of the Father, the Bible says, but are of the world. Now, the devil himself is the controlling force in our world. He controls the systems of this world. The way the world operates, he desires to instigate the lust that we have in our flesh, the, the desires we have to do things contrary to the will of God. The lust that we have in our eyes, the desires we have to have things contrary to the will of God. And the desires that appeal to our egos in the pride of life. He is a controlling force in our television programming, our social media, our educational system, our philosophical thinking, and in our culture. In fact, the Bible describes him as the prince and power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He is cunning. He is crafty. He is sneaky. He is deceptive. He is wily. And his, he and his dark angelic forces have been beguiling men and women since the beginning of time, and he'll use any means necessary to ensnare the child of God. That's why the Bible says that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The devil doesn't want prisoners. He doesn't want to give his conquered any quarter. He desires to devour and destroy our marriages, our homes, our testimonies, our churches, and our lives. And the Bible says that we need to be sober and vigilant. Why? Because our adversary, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The devil and his demonic forces want to destroy us. And they can appear as angels of light, the Bible says, and ministers of righteousness. They can appear as good things and enticing us towards things that bring temporary gratification, but in the end will lead to our destruction. His fight is a fight to the death. For the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not with our Christian brother or sister. Amen? Amen? Our fight is not with our spouse or our children, amen? Our fight is not with the person who doesn't know how to drive, amen? Our fight is not with the person on the internet who disagrees with us, amen? Our fight is with evil demonic forces at work in our world. And the Bible says we wrestle not. Now, I have competed in wrestling. I have coached wrestling. Wrestling is a combat sport. I've broken my arm wrestling. I've broken my nose twice wrestling. I probably tore 
both my shoulders wrestling. I'm sure I tore both of my elbows, uh, radial and ep- uh, uh, medial side of my elbows, both of them wrestling. I mean, my body has sustained some damage wrestling, but I love it. <laughs> I love the competition. I love the energy. I love uh, uh, just taking another grown man and throwing him on the ground and being able to do it legally, amen? <laughs> but the wrestling being spoken of here is not freestyle or folk style. It's not Olympic or it's not national. The wrestling being spoken of here is literally a hand-to-hand combat to the death. And notice what the Bible says, we wrestle not. Paul is talking to the entire church, and he's telling them alongside of himself, we wrestle not. He's challenging the church that they do not have to endure spiritual warfare alone. We together as believers are in hand-to-hand combat together wrestling against the devil and his demons together. How many of you know the story of David and Goliath in the Bible? This giant of a guy is on uh, the Philistine armies pitched on one side of the Valley of Elah, and the Israeli armies pitched on another side of the Valley of Elah. And for 40 days, Goliath is coming out, and he's giving a, a uh, uh, basically a competition. He's saying, whoever, uh, what, whatever warrior that can defeat me uh, will be your servants, and if we do the same, you'll be our servants. And, and I think to myself, as so what would happen? They'd be fighting in the battle, and then Goliath would come, and then the field would clear, the field of battle, and everybody would go to their side, and Goliath would come out, and he'd give his his charge, who wants to fight me? I always think to myself, how come five of those Israeli soldiers didn't get together and say, you take the legs, you take the knees, you take the torso, you take his mouth, we'll take him out. Because that's what I think I would have done, maybe not. But you know, sometimes we allow ourselves to get isolated like in the wild the jungles of Africa, the gazelle gets by itself, and when the gazelle gets by itself, that's when he's doomed. And that's why it's so important for us to have an attachment to a church, to be a part of a community, to be a part of a small group, to to be a part of a family, so we're not going out by ourselves trying to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the devil's organized. He's got an hierarchy, principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. And they're all bent on destroying us. These forces cannot read our minds. They cannot know our thoughts, but they can observe our behavior. And they have been sidetracking men and women since the beginning of time so they know man's inclinations. They know our sinful buttons. And they're waiting for a time to attack. And every one of us must be ready. And the Bible says that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. They're waiting for their moment to invade our lives, to destroy us with their evil. The enemy is real. And if it isn't sobering to you and me that we have real enemies intent on our destruction... 
May I remind you that sometimes the greatest enemy that we have is our own weak resolve. Sometimes the greatest enemy that we have is the one to whom we look at in the mirror. But if we're going to face the enemy and stand and have victory in the battle, we need to arm ourselves appropriately. And that's why the rest of the text talks about the armaments of the battle. Now, the only way any of us stand a chance at getting victory over the spiritual battles that we face is by using what God has given us in our salvation. And Paul, all throughout this epistle, already has taught the Ephesians. He's taught them the things they needed to know. He's given them the knowledge that they needed to have. Now, God didn't use Paul to give uh, all of these rich truths and Ephesians and doctrines only to have him say, oh, wait a minute, I forgot. I wanted to tell you, you're in a battle. The devil and his dark angels are after you, and now let me tell you what you need to know. No, he had already told them what they needed to know in this epistle for victory. In fact, he describes it as the whole armor of God. And it's the only means to stand when Satan is seeking an advantage. The Bible says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Now, the armor then is described in the text. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now, the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man cometh unto the Father but by him. It says that in John chapter 14, 6. And the Bible says in John 8, 32, that when we know the truth through his word and the truth about Jesus, he sets us free. Now, lying is a behavior that's unbecoming of a child of God. And the sad thing is some of us do it so easily. It was a problem in the church at Ephesus a problem to which Paul had already addressed in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25. He says, Wherefore, put away lying, speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And the Bible says that our loins need to be girt about with truth. Now we know this, from our loins comes life. And the point is here that the piece of armor God is telling them to, to wear is, is this piece of armor that proclaims only those things that are true. Now, we need to be honest with ourselves, understanding where we are, where we need to go, and the inability that we have within ourselves to get spiritual victory. We need to be honest with others, and we need to be honest with the rest of the world. Our loins, our lives need to be producing truth. And then the Bible gives another armament, the breastplate of righteousness. Pastor Dom, I didn't have all of the armaments, but I had a few of them. And so I wanted to show you, and this is not exactly what it would have been like. But we got here, uh, let's see, we got uh, having your breastplate of righteousness on, my friend. There it is, the breastplate of righteousness. Look at that. Covers about one-third of him. <laughs> now, an ancient breastplate would protect all of the vital organs, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the pancreas, all of the vital organs. 
And we need to understand that when we receive Jesus Christ as the payment of our sins and the Lord of our lives, his righteousness is credited to our account. In fact, Romans tells it this way. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption or the payment that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be the propitiation to satisfy the law, to satisfy righteousness through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the payment of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now, Paul had earlier told the Ephesians that they needed to appropriate righteousness, the righteousness they already had received, and start living in their new identity as believers. In fact, he says this in verse 24 of Ephesians 4, and that you put on the new man, which is uh, in God created in righteousness and true holiness. Now, as we live in our new identity, it, lives to, it leads to lives lived in righteousness and holiness. So, so God is telling Paul to tell the Ephesians and us today to cover our hearts with our identity. To cover our hearts with our, our identity. Don't believe the devil's lies about you. Yes, you will stumble. Yes, you will trip up. But remember in your heart who you are, or more importantly, whose you are. In fact, Romans tells it this way. It says, for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not, be, we should not serve sin. And then it says, for he that is dead is freed from sin. In your heart of hearts, you need to understand you're no longer bound to it. You're no longer ensnared by sin. In your heart of hearts, you need to understand that you're free from it. And you need to live in your identity. And as you do, you are appropriating the breastplate of righteousness. And then we need to understand something else. The Bible goes on to say, and our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's got his feet shod with J's today, amen? I, if I'd have known, I would have wore my J's today. Preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, as the devil continues to advance in our world, controlling governments, controlling media, controlling families and individuals, using his principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, we need to cover our feet with the gospel of peace. Now, the boots Paul was describing here were the Roman caliga, a half boot that would cover the top of one's foot, and, and on the bottom, there, was, uh, there were cleats on the bottom. And, and this half boot was not meant to run in because Roman soldiers were not taught to run. They were only taught to walk in advance. In fact, these in the thick of the battle, they could dig their feet in and start swinging with their sword. And so Paul is telling the Ephesians that they needed to dig their feet in while proclaiming the gospel which brings peace. Paul had already told them in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God hath before ordained we should walk in them. Now, we have peace with God in salvation, and because of this, we have the peace of God. 
after we have salvation. And as the gospel is proclaimed, God uses his word and the truth about Jesus to convict men and women of their need of a savior, turning them from darkness to light, slowing the advance of the darkness of the devil and his minions. In fact, Paul spoke about this in Acts chapter 26. He said, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. Not only do we need our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we also need the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Kind of a puny shield, uh, but it'll do for now. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, faith was a subject that Paul had already dealt with in this epistle. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, he said that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that you in Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And then he went on to describe the, the capacity of that faith that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask and think, verse 20, according to the power that worketh in us. And here Paul is telling the Ephesians and us today to take up our shields of faith. Now, the, the shield in the Roman times during Paul's time was a shield called a scutum. And it was a shield made of two layers of laminated wood covered first with linen and then with hide, and then bound on the top and bottom with iron. A man could put his entire body behind this type of shield. Now, in the case of flaming arrows, oftentimes that shield would absorb those flaming arrows, and because of the thickness of the shield, uh, that, that, that fiery dart would be quenched as it entered the density of that shield. And then Paul picture, uh, pictures this, as we're in battle, the enemy is launching repeated volleys of arrows, fiery darts, temptations and strategies and deceptions uh, to consume us uh, and defeat us. But up come our shields of faith as we trust in God and his word going through those difficult times and it quenches those darts that are hurled our way. And then the Bible tells us that we need to take the helmet of salvation now, Roman helmets were two types. There was a, uh, a helmet made of leather made, called a galea, and then there was a cassis, a helmet made of metal. Now, the helmet had a band to protect the forehead with plates on top and plates that extended down the cheeks and also to protect the back of the neck. Now, when the helmet was strapped in place, it exposed very little beyond the eyes and the nose and the mouth. He does kind of look funny, doesn't he? <laughs> now, the metal helmets, due to their weight, were lined with sponge or felt, and virtually the only weapon which could penetrate a Roman helmet was a hammer or an axe. Arrows would just bounce off of it. Now, as we think of the helmet of salvation, the devil wants nothing more than to get in the head of believers. Once you get in your head. I was watching college football a little bit yesterday, and I was watching some teams, and I, I watched some players, uh, some defensive backs, get it, trying to get in the heads of the receivers that they're recovering. 
And it's, it's gamesmanship. It's on. You got a receiver. He catches a pass miraculously, and he gets into the head of that defensive back, and he's like, I own you. And then that defensive back starts to think, I wonder if he does own me. And you know what? That's what the devil is constantly trying to do to us. To get us to doubt our identity, to get us to doubt our salvation. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And he and his dark forces are constantly hurling attacks to try to get us to doubt what God has done for us and what God has done in us. Now, Paul had already told the Ephesians that they were blessed with all in Christ, that they were chosen before the foundation of the world, that they were adopted, verse 5, into God's family, verse 6, that they were accepted into the beloved, that they were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, had forgiveness of sins, and had experienced the riches of his grace. And we too need to put on the helmet of salvation as believers. We need to always remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us and where we stand with God. And then another piece of the armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The most offense-related weapon is mentioned here in our text. Now, Paul had earlier mentioned that the way to build up one and to prevent one from being sidetracked is by using the Word of God. In fact, in Ephesians 4.14, he says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men in cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth and love may grow up into him in all things. Now, when Jesus himself was tempted after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, we see him responding to the devil by using the word. Matthew 4, 3 says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And Jesus responded, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And then we see Satan in verse 6, And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time they dash thy foot against the stone. And Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And then Satan took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. And in verse 9, saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And Jesus saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Jesus combated the devil with the word. Amen. And we need to do the same. Amen. We need to read it. We need to comprehend it. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate upon it. We need to hear it. We need to use it. Amen. Jeremiah said, Is not my word like a fire, and like a hammer that breaketh the rocks in pieces? Isaiah said, So shall my word be that goeth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, uh, but it shall accomplish that which I please. Hebrews says, The word of God is quick and sharp, uh, sharper than a two-edged sword. I mean, the word is powerful. 
And we absolutely need it as a greater part of our lives. It is the weapon in our spiritual arsenal to push the devil backwards and to advance our lives forwards. And lastly, as we look at the armaments, we see one last one found in verse 18. It says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You know, it's interesting, the word here for prayer is a Greek word which has the idea of turning our thoughts and our feelings towards God the moment we feel fearful, the moment we feel nervous, the moment we feel anxious. It would include stopping, recognizing what's going on, worshiping God for who He is, understanding that He's greater than any struggle that we face. And so the Bible says that we are to be praying always with all prayer. We are to stop, recognize what's going on uh, the moment we feel anxious. And while doing so, we need to stop again and understand that God is greater than anything that we face. And then the Bible uses the word supplication. Supplication is a type of prayer that expresses need before asking anything of God. It's a general understanding and acknowledging words that we're unable to handle what we're facing on our own. This element in prayer is an acknowledgement of our limitations and then taking those limitations to God who doesn't have any. So while we are stopping, recognizing we're in a battle, feeling anxious, and then stopping again, worshiping God for who He is, that He's greater than anything that we face, we need to face up to our own limitations and then release our cares and our concerns to God so that we can win our spiritual battles. And we are to watch in an enduring way, not just as individuals, but as a collective, as a team, as a group, as a body. And that's why the Bible says, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, we need to fight this battle together. We can't do it alone. So this morning, a couple things to think about. Will we understand we don't have what it takes to win spiritual battles on our own? Will we understand that we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might? Secondly, will we understand our enemy is not a lightweight? Will we understand that our enemy is not a lightweight that we can contend with, but he's real, and he's masterful, and he's bent on our destruction. And then thirdly, will we arm ourselves for the battle? Will we ready ourselves each day? And then lastly, will we do it together? The book of Exodus, Moses has been in Midian for 40 years and God appears to him in the burning bush and tells him that he's going to go back and he's going to deliver his people, Israel, out of Egypt. Moses uh, 
Ben goes to Pharaoh. He goes to, goes to Aaron, tells Aaron that he's going to be his mouthpiece. And Aaron, every time he stands before Pharaoh, is with Moses. And Moses would go to Pharaoh and he'd say, Let my people go. The plague of, of water becoming blood happens. Pharaoh tries to replicate it with his magicians. And all throughout the ten plagues of Egypt, this is go on, going on. And each time... Moses would cry out, let my people go. Egypt is a type in the Bible of the world. And the picture there is God was wanting to deliver his people out of the world. He was wanting to make a people for himself, a people that had a new identity, a people that had a new oneness a people that had a new true king. And we find that today, that reality in the church. But we see our Egypt today, the world in which we live, vying for our hearts, vying for our attention, vying for our souls, vying for our children, vying for our families. And we as leaders in our home, as we pray, getting on our face, getting on our knees, we're crying out to God and saying in the face of the devil, let my people go. Let them go. We're going to do something a little different this morning. I understand as a pastor that this is a battle that we cannot face alone. This spiritual battle, we have it on a daily basis, every one of us. The challenges that you have in your family, that is not a fleshly battle. That is not a battle that you can win. The challenges that you have at work with your coworkers, that is not a fleshly battle. That is not a battle you can win. The challenges that you have with extended family and other places, that is not a, a battle that you can win on your own. The temptations that arise in your soul with lust and anger and sadness, that is not a battle you can win on your own. We need to do it together. So this morning, I'm going to ask, would you join me together? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you join me 